denied, sin crucified. We ought to sing that song around the world. What a wonderful privilege it is to be together tonight celebrating the message of heart holiness, celebrating the doctrine and the experience of holiness, celebrating that which brought the Church of the Nazarene into being, and if we have a second century, it will be because of holiness. I am thrilled to death with the holiness summits. I believe that this is of God. It reminds me a whole lot of the old camp meetings, of the holiness conferences, of the, of the opportunities to get together and celebrate a message. And I really believe that something needs to happen to ignite in us, to awaken in us, to reignite in us a passion for holiness. It's, um, it's more than just an option for the Church of the Nazarene. It is the very reason we exist. Apart from the message of holiness, we're wasting a lot of money. We're wasting a lot of time. We need to recover a passion for the message of holiness in the Church of the Nazarene. And I, for one, am praying for a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this event. And I am praying that what starts here will be carried on so that when we get to Orlando, Florida, it will be known in future years as the Pentecost of the Church of the Nazarene. So let's be praying in that direction, will you? It's great to see representatives from literally around the world. Can you imagine a message bringing us together from around the world? It's why we're here. And I celebrate with you what God has to say to us these few hours together. Turn with me in your New Testaments to the first letter of Peter. Simon Peter, one of the twelve, one of the three. Simon Peter, who can make more out of less than almost anybody you know. Simon Peter, that I can disturbingly identify with in ways I wish I couldn't. Simon Peter, who would get it so right and then get it so wrong. The one who could look at Jesus and say, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in just a few more hours, maybe even minutes after that, he would say to Jesus, now listen, Lord, if you're going to do this, you've got to do it my way. Simon Peter could make promises like, though everyone else forsakes you, I will die for you. And Jesus looked at him and said, oh, will you really? And in just a few hours, he cowered before the accusing finger of a little girl, denied he even knew Jesus, and ran and hid. We don't know how it happened. It's none of our business how the Lord gets back with a distraught soul wandering in darkness. But somewhere, Jesus and Simon Peter got back together, and what a meeting it must have been. Because one of the, one of the uh, proofs of the resurrection for that early group was the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Of all people, he would go to Simon. And then there was that evening behind locked doors. And all of a sudden, there was the risen one, and things were never the same again. He breathed on them and said, Receive Holy Spirit. And the Johannine Pentecost tells us that it was there that things began to change. It was Simon Peter who preached the great Pentecost sermon 
who stood boldly in the face of all of those who only days before had been trying to kill Jesus and any who would follow him. And now Simon Peter standing there. The difference, the difference was Pentecost. Oh, did he get it right from that point on? No. Paul said at one point in his letters, I withstood Simon Peter to his face, for he was to be blamed. He was just wrong. Anybody else want to testify? <laughs> but Pentecost changed him, turned him around, redefined him, redirected him. And you and I are in this room in great measure because of what Simon Peter experienced on the day of Pentecost. Now, some years later, the aged apostle is writing, the one with great respect, the one who was in many ways the head of the church, the one, the one around whom much of the power and the energy of the first decades of the church revolved. It was Simon Peter who, who had so much influence. Simon Peter, influential enough that they wanted to hear from him even in places where he had never been. It's interesting to me that the letter of First Peter is written to places that there is no record Simon Peter ever visited. But he spoke with a great deal of intimacy about them. He knew them and knew them well, and he cared deeply for them. And he wrote this letter. Listen with me, if you will, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Turn with me now to verse 13. After some wonderful words of encouragement and instruction, he said, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when He is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as He who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." If you invoke as Father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish, who was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are set on God. Now that you've purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You've been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring Word of God. To chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Oh, God, open your word. Open our hearts and minds. Invite us into your presence. Oh, God, you've chosen us. May we respond in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They bordered the southern shores of uh, the Black Sea, as we call it today. It's now in the land that we know as Turkey. It's, it's that part of the world that uh, is an interesting mixture of cultures and languages. When he wrote into this kind of setting, he, he wrote to people who would understand what it means to be under the dominance of a Roman power, the Roman Empire, but who well remembered the fact that Rome may be in charge, but we are still who we are. We're Asians, and we're Cappadocians, we're Galatians. We live in Pontus and Bithynia defined by cultures, thick walls of culture, defined by languages, defined by traditions, defined by all kinds of practices, defined by dress, defined by the kinds of things that gave each of them, each of those cultures, a distinct uh, and, and very clear identification. So he would write to them, exiles in the dispersion, he called them, Pontus and Galatian, Bithynia and Cappadocia and Asia. They, they bore the marks of their cultures. They were an interesting people. They're not far removed from a land that, uh, that we know little about. We, we've heard about it in the news over the last decade or so, last couple of decades. Uh, we call it uh, the Balkans. Now, there, there was once a nation called Yugoslavia during, uh, during the Cold War era, and uh, Yugoslavia after the fall of the wall and after the collapse of, of the USSR, Yugoslavia declared its independence and it wasn't long before within Yugoslavia there were provinces declaring their independence and soon there was war and you know the tragic stories. It's that same kind of cultural pocketing, the isolation that comes when, when though you may have been dominated by larger and superior forces, you maintain the intensity of your, your uh, loyalty to your culture, and you keep your identity, and you wear your garments, and you speak your language. Oh, you may have to learn the larger language, but when you're in the private personal conversations, you use the real language isolated, pocketed, wonderful people, good people in many cases, with, with, with many high ideals. They, they competed with one another for dominance in trade and, and uh, culture and power. Peter wrote into that setting, believers, godly men and women living in that culture, Interesting, isn't it, that as he writes the letter, you begin to realize Peter seems to have an agenda. You know it's okay for God to have an agenda? The difficulty is when his agenda and our agendas compete. It does happen, you know. I, uh, I get the idea that sometimes you and I are marked by our cultures. 
Oh, I love looking around and see the, the variety of hues on our faces. I think it's exciting to be in a place where it's not distressingly white. Where we have the ability to recognize the fact that the kingdom reaches over some of these distinctions. The difficulty for us, though, is that even then, we like our pockets. We love our cultures. We can sometimes find security there and acceptance. Interesting to me that in this letter, Simon Peter writes, opens the letter, opens the letter, addressing them in all of their isolation, in all of their pockets, in all of their enculturation, and he writes to them with, with no apparent agenda to make any disparaging, disparaging comments about that. He just writes into it. And then he begins to talk to them about the God who is holy, the God who has called them, the God who's chosen them. They forget the idea that God has favorites, that he prefers to choose some over others. That there just seem to be some that get a little better treatment than others. Simon Peter was writing into this kind of assumption and saying to them, this, this is a God who's chosen you. He's called you. You're not here because you chose him. You are here because He chose you. Amen. Amen. It's been that way throughout the book of God. You, you go back to Genesis chapter 12. Of all things, God chose a man that we could at best call a pagan saint. A man who worshipped other gods. A, a man who was a part of the culture around him. A, a, man, a man somehow God chose and said later, I didn't choose you because you were numerous or good or better than anybody else. I just chose you. I chose you. The, the choosing of God ought to make a difference, shouldn't it? Something ought to happen in us when God chooses. It ought, to, it ought to break some things down, and it ought to cause us to see things differently. I want you to notice something interesting in this letter over here in the second chapter. He's just written to them, to all the exiles in the dispersion of, of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. He's identified them. He's acknowledged them. He's, he's addressed them. He's, he's bowed to the cultural realities. He's, he's, he's indicated the things that he knows are true, and then... And then he says, but you are a chosen race. Now stop right there. He has just acknowledged their diversity. He has just acknowledged the, the, the pockets, the tendency to, to, to draw into the cultural isolations. He's just identified a variety of cultures and languages and races. He's just spoken into that kind of diversity. And then he's acknowledged the God who chooses us. And then he says, 
but you, and he's using a collective you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. Something happens here. And it's something that you and I need to get a better grip on than we have. It's something endemic in the very message of holiness. Because you must understand that in this passage of Scripture, in these words I've read, I wish I could have had the time to read them all. It would have been the best message of the evening to hear all of these words. But remember, between that first verse and first chapter, when he is addressing them in all their isolation, and the last words of these, this passage I read a moment ago, from Cappadocia and Pontus and Galatia, and all of these distinctions to these last words where he said, but you are a chosen race, a holy nation. Between those two, almost midway between the two is this phrase, you be holy because I'm holy. And I begin to hear him defining holiness in ways and at depths that sometimes will come into confrontation with the settled, easy comfort we have with our cultural markings. How deep does your holiness go? One of my favorite preachers is a guy named Middendorf. Just thought I'd tell you that. <laughs> it's my son, John, pastoring Oklahoma City First Church. I, I listened to his sermons. I was listening the other day to a sermon, and suddenly, you know how it is when you hear a phrase in a sermon that somehow just rearranges everything, just rearranges everything. And as I sat there, I heard him say to his congregation, I, I want you to picture this. Jesus walks up to you, places his hand on your shoulder and looks you in the eye. He says to you, I see something in you that causes me to believe you could be like me. Therefore, I choose you. As I read through this passage of the Scripture, I'm struck by how many times there are references to our calling, our chosenness, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Amen. My brothers and sisters, I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm a Nazarene from the top of my rather balding head to the bottom of my number 11s. I know us from the inside out. I know us well. And I have to tell you that I lived much of my life under the influence of holiness as demand. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. Measure up here. Measure up there. We could lay it out before you. It's awfully easy for it to begin to sound as if holiness is your bit. But in recent years, I've discovered holiness as promise. 
<laughs> Not the God I have to pursue because he's elusive, but the God who pursued me even when I was elusive and hunted me down and found me. And I want to talk to you about holiness as promise. There's several things in this passage of Scripture that are very important to us at this particular time in our history. I, 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 it, it isn't lost on us, is it, that we are enjoying this event just weeks, just scant days in advance of the celebration of the centennial of the Church of the Nazarene. May I tell you a little of our history? I'll try to condense it, but I need to tell you some of our history. Pilot Point, 1908, October the 13th, what a day it was. It was the day the resolution finally was passed unanimously, and they joined together. It became the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene. Not a bad name. The Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene. Dr. Brzee. Dr. Brzee and C.W. Ruth, an evangelist, had traveled back and forth across the country, border to border, coast to coast. Dr. Brzee had a passion and an agenda. Dr. Brzee had pastored in Iowa for a number of years. After becoming a Methodist pastor, some time after becoming a Methodist pastor, he discovered anew the message that had formed the Methodist church, the message of heart holiness. And Dr. Brzee became a passionate proponent of the message of entire sanctification. He preached it. He loved it. He lived it. And once he got to California, where he began to pastor and pastored some very prestigious congregations, including the First Northern Methodist Church of Los Angeles, California, Dr. Brzee had a tremendous influence across the area, was on the board of trustees when they founded a Christian college known as the University of Southern California. It was a very significant time in the life of the church, but Dr. Brzee, over a period of time, somehow felt that his ability to preach the message of holiness and minister to the least and the lost, to go to the neglected quarters of the city, was hindered by the structures that he was a part of. And so over time, Dr. Brzee and a few others decided it was time for them to do what they felt God had called them to do, and that was go into the very heart of Los Angeles, in the very worst area, the neglected quarters of the cities, and establish a mission. And they did. He, Dr. J.P. Whitney, a medical doctor and a layman, got together with a number of other people and they established that church. What a church it was. It, it eventually became the first church of the Nazarene. That name brought together by uh, Dr. J.P. Whitney after a night of prayer, one of those all nights of prayer. They believed in all nights of prayer. What a novel idea. They believed in praying fervently and passionately and continually. And after one of those all nights of prayer, Dr. J.P. Whitney said, it came to him, the name of this new church. It ought to be, he said, the, named after the Nazarene to symbolize the toiling, lowly mission of Christ. It was the name which Jesus used of himself, said Whitney, the name which was used in derision of him by his enemies. The name which above all others linked him to the great toiling, struggling, sorrowing heart of the world. It is Jesus, said Dr. Whitney, Jesus of Nazareth, to whom the world in its misery and despair turns, that it may have hope. Amen. So from the very beginning, Jesus was the hope for the church of the Nazarene. Amen. That great church eventually built the glory barn. And what a time they had. If you ever read the description of some of those services, it would scare you to death. <laughs> there were things happening there that we'd probably call him on the carpet for today, but it was a great church. Some good things going on. 
But Dr. Brzee and Dr. C.W. Ruth both felt there needed to be more than just a congregation. People began to hear about what God was doing in that Los Angeles congregation. So up and down the West Coast, over time, congregations were planted. Churches of the Nazarene. C.W. Ruth traveling across the country, as, as did Dr. Brzee from time to, time to time, would come across these other places where holiness bodies were gathering together, holiness associations were gathering, camp meeting associations for the preaching of holiness. And the holiness bodies were very important to these two men, in part because Dr. Brzee had been a member of the Northern Methodist Church. He read his history. He knew that at one time, Methodism and the Wesleyan holiness message had been the single most important influence on the shaping of the nation we call the United States of America. Those circuit-riding preachers covered the land. And as westward expansion occurred, the church was right there with them on the, from the very beginning. Dr. Francis Asbury was said to be known on facial recognizance by more people in the United States than any other man on the continent, including George Washington. He was a man who was in more homes than you could ever imagine. Francis Asbury had an incredible influence in the shaping of the nation. But around 1840, something happened. This growing nation, with a growing tension over a social and economic issue called slavery, the, the, the church, the Methodist church, began to struggle and argue and fight. And finally, around 1840, some groups began to, to leave the church and began to get involved in, in uh, uh, seeking ways to bring an end to slavery, the Free Methodist Church, the Wesleyan Methodist Church, other bodies. And finally, through the stress of all that was going on, the Methodist Church, the repository of the message of holiness, the, the, the single most influential denomination on the shaping of the frontier of America, the Methodist Church fractured over a social issue. And the message of holiness lost its grip on the nation. Dr. Brzee was a passionate proponent of unionism. In fact, they tell us that in the Iowa churches in which he pastored, he would drape the Union flag across his pulpit when he preached. Just a little political statement there. But Dr. Brzee also believed that somehow the message of holiness needed to be reunited. And after the forming of the Church of the Nazarene and his beginning to see the, the desire of others to come together, he began to travel back and forth across the country until finally in 1907 in Chicago, Illinois, they had an incredible gathering of representatives from the West and the Central and the East and especially in the Northeast, and they had a gathering together and organized the Church of the Nazarene as a nationwide body, and they had a celebration that would be hard for us to imagine today. It was a great day. And there were those who said to Dr. Brzee, you've done it, you've finally done it. It's over, you finished it, you finally accomplished what you wanted to accomplish. You brought together East and West. We now have a nationwide body that is going to preserve and preach the doctrine of holiness we are so grateful to you, Dr. Brzee said, not quite yet. It's interesting. Growing up as I did with my roots in the Deep South, I've, I've read the history with a little different slant on it than some of our historians. And I love what happened in Pilot Point, Texas. Because in Pilot Point, they came from California, 
and Chicago and New England. And they came from Arkansas and Mississippi and Louisiana and Texas. They gathered in Texas, one of those Confederate states. And they gathered in a little village of Pilot Point where there was already a holiness college, rest cottages for unfortunate girls, as they called it, and a variety of other ministries. And they had a district assembly for that ministry there. And then after that district assembly was over, by the way, I just celebrated this summer the 100th anniversary of the West Texas District, the district that was already in existence before Pilot Point existed. What a time we had. And in that uh, gathering in 1908, as they came from all over that part of the country, all over the deep south, as well as the east and the west and the north, when they got together, they argued, they debated, they compromised in the right sense of the word. There were even a few representatives that left over a variety of issues. One of them, a group in Arkansas, left, pulled out, didn't go ahead, and it was over the issue of infant baptism. That group still exists in Arkansas, a wonderful group of holiness people still there, still not baptizing babies. But the group that stayed, preached, prayed, argued, debated. Finally, on that last day, on the 13th, someone made a resolution that all of the, all of the bodies represented there would finally come together and form the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene. And when it passed unanimously, they began to shout and praise God. And they milled around inside that tent with handkerchiefs waving and people patting one another on the back, embracing one another, and then it happened. It happened. On that platform, there were representatives of all the bodies, and on this side was William Howard Hoople, all 275 pounds of him. And on this side was a wiry little Texan, about 140 pounds, soaking wet. And the wiry little Texan, his voice booming out across the din of the celebration that was going on, suddenly stood up and said, I haven't hugged a Yankee since before the Civil War, but I'm about to hug one now. And he ran across the platform, and William Howard Hoople met him in the middle, and the two of them embra embraced, and when they embraced, pandemonium broke out, and they began to sing and shout and praise the Lord, and we have the picture of the people marching around the tent. That's when they started marching around the tent. And some genius of a Yankee wrote a poem and put it to the tune of Dixie. And they sang the song, marching around, celebrating the uniting of the holiness bodies, north and south, east and west. And the Church of the Nazarene got its start in the middle of a celebration of breaking down all the geographical and the political and the social boundaries. And we became the Church of the Nazarene that to this day ought to celebrate the fact that holiness breaks down walls. Now, friends, if holiness breaks down walls, we need holiness. We can fight over the drop of a phrase. Do you mind if I say to you I'm tired of being a referee? I've got letters in my briefcase. Dr. Deal has letters in his briefcase. We'll be glad to pass them out and let you answer some of them. But it seems to me that the people called Nazarenes ought to learn not to fight. Amen. 
that the people call Nazarenes ought to be holy enough that we begin to reflect the very character of Christ. I want to talk about this holiness, this holiness that is promised to us. In this passage of Scripture, these four things I want to lift up. First of all, there is a preparation for holiness. Look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Holiness, holiness has always required discipline. Holiness has always demanded of us, demanded of us, the necessity of opening our hearts to what God is trying to do. There is a preparation for holiness. There is the necessity of opening our hearts to what God would have us to do. If you read through Colossians, chapter 3 especially, you hear Paul admonishing the church in Colossae, lay aside these things, no longer do these things, stop doing these things, start doing these things, add to these things, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, he said. And he gives us a long list of the things that we need to set aside. There is an appropriate discipline to holiness. There is an appropriate preparation to holiness that comes when we apply the necessary disciplines of life. When I come to Christ, there are some things I stop. When I come to Christ, there's some things that should come to an end. When I come to Christ and become like Him, some things should be rearranged. You and I, some of us, can give some incredible testimonies of what happened when we came first to Christ. Some of us have those stories that go way back and very deep. Brokenness, addiction, profound brokenness. Some of you know the story of our family. Three kids, one of each. And <laughs> how can three kids raised in the same one home by the same two parents turn out that different from one another? If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. And two of our children, it just seems from the very beginning, they just, just knew Following Christ was the only way. But our youngest, 18 long years, years of addiction, years of brokenness, broken relationships, prison, you name it. And I have to be honest with you, there are ways that I just simply didn't know how to identify with that. You see, I was converted at, at six years of age from a terrible life of sin. <laughs> I didn't know how to identify with levels of brokenness that close to us. I became intimately involved intimately familiar, intimately aware that you don't know how bad you can hurt till you hurt for your kids. Susan and I spent hours in prayer, weeping, praying, fasting. I knew how you could get saved as a six-year-old. And I'd seen instances of others coming out of traumatic brokenness. This was so close to home. But the last Sunday in June, <laughs> Susan had the privilege of being in Oklahoma City when our oldest son, John, 
baptized our youngest son, Jim. <laughs> and the middle sister, Marlo, read the testimony and couldn't control her emotions. And Susan came close to walking the backs of the pews in that service. But what we've discovered for Jim is what Jim has discovered for himself. There's a discipline that goes with being changed. That there's preparation for holiness. If God is going to do something deeper in you, you've got to begin to allow him to do it. You've got to begin to open up to some things that he'd like to do. And there's several things that go on in discipline. There's several preparations that have to be accomplished. And we, we, know, what, we, we know that there are a lot of things that we say to people, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do the other. And we, we begin to make it sound as if the preparation for holiness, the preparation for holiness occurs. Once you become a believer, the preparation for holiness is going to take everything you've got. And we, we begin to talk about it. You know, we know that we're saved by grace through faith. By grace alone, through faith alone, we are saved by grace, but we have this sneaking suspicion that you're sanctified by good old-fashioned hard work. <laughs> but I want you to read this passage. Listen to this. Turn with me. Go back. Open your Bible. You've got to have it right here. This is not the preacher. This is the Word. Therefore, Prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Do you see what he says is the first discipline? The next phrase is, Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring when he is revealed. My dear friends, the first most important preparation for holiness is the realization that you can never sanctify yourself. You are sanctified entirely, solely by the blood of Jesus through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. You can never discipline yourself into the holy life. You can never accomplish it on your own. You can never do enough. There are not enough good habits to perform. There are not enough good habits to form. There are not enough hard things to do to ever sanctify you. You ever heard of the Ten Commandments? You ever read what Paul said about the Ten Commandments? If you think you're doing, you can do this, you're nuts. Middendorf Revised Standard Translation. You can't do this, he said. Joshua said to the people of God after he was coming to the conclusion of his ministry and they had rebelled and failed God over and over again and he confronted them again with the law of God. He said to them, you've got to do these things. And they said, oh, okay, we will. And you remember what he said? You can't. Dear friends, the most important step for me in my hunger for holiness was the stark realization that I couldn't do it on my own. The most important preparation that you will ever make for holiness is to believe that the only way you'll ever be holy is for God to do in you what only God can do on the sheer merits of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The most important preparation for holiness is trusting Him who alone can make you holy. Notice also, there's a standard for holiness here. The standard is here. You shall be holy because I am holy. 
I don't care who you know who may be holy. The holiest man or woman you know is not your standard for holiness. My uh, 92-year-old dad is a retired Nazarene pastor. He's my hero. I love to talk to him. I love to listen to him. At 92 years of age, he complains to me. They don't call him to preach as often as they think that they should. <laughs> said to me a little while back, son, they never call me anymore. Where's Talmadge Johnson when you need him? I said, well, Dad, they, they, they're just afraid you might not survive the sermon. <laughs> I watched him throughout his life as I was growing up. I saw him in circumstances that were incredibly difficult. I saw him accused of things that he and others knew he did not do, but he refused to retaliate in order that he might have a platform later to have a redemptive relationship with those who accused him. I saw him literally lay his life on the line trying to protect two African-American fishermen who were being attacked and assaulted by drunken white men. And Dad literally laid his life on the line. They tried to kill him. I watched it. I saw him preach holiness when people were deriding him for believing in anything like that. I saw him live holiness during a time of brokenness in our home that was indescribable, and he lived the holy life. And I have to tell you, when I began to think about holiness for my own journey, for begin to realize that God was speaking to me about a deeper work that He longed to do in my life, I began to say, but God, I can never be like that. The most important day of my life was when God said to me, no, you can't. You just don't have it in you. You'll never be like that. And I thought, a lot of help you are. It was then that God said to me, He is not your standard. He may be a good example, but He is not your standard. It doesn't matter how holy He ever gets, He will never be standard enough for you to say, I want to be holy like He is holy. The only adequate standard for us is God Himself, the God who has said, You be holy because I am holy. That is the standard for holiness. The standard for holiness is the life of Jesus Christ himself who said to his disciples, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Our standard for holiness is not the guy next to us. Our disappointment in them that gives us no right to complain that holiness doesn't work because they're not holy. They are not the standard. He alone is the standard. The standard for holiness is not the holiest man or woman you know. The standard for holiness is not the most miserable failure you know. The one toward whom you want to cast your accusations and say, I can't be a Christian because of him. He is not the point. He is the standard, and he alone is our standard. Oh, let me move ahead quickly. You've got to know that the basis for our holiness is not our good performance. The basis for our holiness is not how they did it. The basis for our holiness is not the experience of some other person who may have had a wonderful experience. The basis for our holiness is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. He and He alone is the foundation on which our holiness is built. Listen to these words. You know that you were ransomed 
from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him you've come to trust in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are set on God. Your hope is not in you. Your hope, is not in, your hope is not in the manual. Your hope is not in the articles of faith. Oh, I love the articles of faith, all of them, especially Article 10. But your hope is not in Article 10. As much as I love the Word, your hope is not even the Word. Your hope is the blood of Jesus Christ who died for all that is even called sin, everything you've ever done and everything with which you were ever born. He alone is the atoning sacrifice for all our sins, for sin in deed and sin in being. He alone is the only adequate resource to which we can turn for the cleansing of the heart as well as for the forgiveness of our sins. He is the basis for our holiness, for our sanctification. Through Him we have come to trust in God. He alone is the basis on which you and I stand tonight. You're not accepted before God because you were sanctified 40 years ago and are living it right now. You're only sanctified and able to stand before God, sanctified to the will and purposes of God, because whatever God did 40 years ago, you're still saying yes today, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, continues to cleanse. Oh, I believe in the crisis. Boy, do I believe in the crisis. But I believe that if all we believe in is in the crisis, we've missed the point. We've often asked the question, is it crisis or process? Of course, the answer is yes. When, is it ne when has it ever been that we didn't believe that both were critically important to the life of holiness? We must be sanctified in that moment of utter yielding to Him, but we must trust Him daily for the continuing growth in grace that is necessary because when you're sanctified, you are not yet glorified. He's not finished with you at that altar of prayer. He started with you there, but He's not finished yet. Oh, he accomplishes so much. I mentioned that uh, I was saved at six years of age, kneeling by my bed in the parsonage of First Church of the Nazarene in Charlotte, North Carolina, led to the Lord by my little brown-eyed mother in that soft southern drawl. When I said to her, Mom, why did Martha, my younger sister, just much younger than I. Why did, why did Martha go to the altar tonight? Oh, Jess, she said, Martha has invited Jesus to come into her heart. I puzzled for a bit. I'd heard all of this stuff. Dad was a good preacher. But somehow it never seemed to apply to me until that night. When it applied to Martha, and anything that applied to her had to apply to me. I, I don't know how to describe it any other way 
to you than just to say it was the sweetest experience I can remember. There was no demand. She didn't beat me on the back. She didn't try to tell me what a rotten, dirty sinner I was. She said to me, if you want Jesus to, to come into your heart and live for you, if you, if you want to just give your life to him, you can do that right now. I don't know why. I have no idea why, but I just suddenly felt this rush of emotion and tears streaming down those six-year-old cheeks. And it was done. You know, I, I didn't see any flames. I didn't hear any angel, angel choirs. I just knew. The next morning we got up and we were having breakfast and my mother said to me, Jess, why don't you tell Daddy what happened last night? Huh. There wasn't any doubt in my mind what you wanted me to talk about. Uh, Daddy, last night uh, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And he stood up from the table and walked around and stuck his hand out and shook hands with me. <laughs> That's wonderful, Jesse said. And then he embraced me. I, you know, I've always felt that somehow when you get saved, you ought to shake hands with somebody. <laughs> I just remember the sense. It, it was just confirmed the first moment I said to somebody else, I've asked Jesus to come into my heart. Now, I was a normal teenager. Oh, was I normal. I can tell you the times, I can tell you the places where the Lord came in and saved me by His graces. And it was, I, I just wore a hole in the altars at every church we were in. Youth camps. Thank God for youth camps. Where the first stirrings of a call to ministry seemed to begin to get a hold of my heart. I went away to college knowing finally that it was ministry. I was to preach. Enrolled at Trevecca Nazarene College, struggled a little bit a time or two with what direction I should go, but finally settled it, went on and majored in religion, finished Trevecca, went on to Nazarene Seminary knowing that in my age, at my stage of maturity, some more school was probably a good idea for the church's sake. <laughs> so I went on to seminary, went through a couple of years of seminary. It was that senior year. Looking ahead to getting out into the ministry, I could hardly wait to get there. Several times I said to the Lord, do you, do you really have any idea how lucky you are? <laughs> Lord, we're going to take the world. I can hardly wait to get out there and show them how it's to be done. I mean, I had it, I had it down. I, I could tell the Lord pretty easily, I, I really appreciate your calling me to preach, and if you'll just get out of the way and let me do it my way, this is going to be pretty good work. Increasingly, that senior year, something began to gnaw at my heart. The closer I got to leaving that place, the more I realized something's wrong. I've said a number of times, I wish I could tell you who was preaching. I wish I remember the sermon. I don't remember what he preached on. don't remember the, the sermon. don't remember who was preaching. I just remember that somehow throughout a chapel service, God and I got serious. It wasn't so much that I was clawing after him as he was inviting myself to him. And the longer that service went, the more uneasy I became about stepping out into the future as I was then. 
And I finally came, finally came to the conclusion, oh God, if you don't do something, I will be a mess out there. It was as if he said, you're catching on. <laughs> finally, I came to the place where I said, Lord, I don't care what anybody else does. I'm going to pray. I've got to have your help, and I've got to have it now. And by the time I, I, I came to myself, I, stepping out of the aisle, it dawned on me nobody else was in the pews. They were already at the aisle. There wasn't any place to kneel. All of the altar was covered. The only place I could find to work my way through the crowd was over under the grand piano, and I finally knelt and had my head under the grand piano, but I didn't have to stay there long because by the time I got there, he'd already been saying to me, I see something in you that causes me to believe you could become like me. Jess, I've chosen you. Are you willing to say yes? How deep is the yes you're willing to say? It didn't take long. It really didn't take long. I don't know whether my knee has ever hit the floor. I just know it was settled. From that point on, it was settled. It didn't matter what happened. It didn't matter how miserable a failure I might be, how much success I might achieve. I didn't care for anything but finding and doing the will of God and doing it God's way. For once my will was established, He was sovereign Lord, and I was finally off the throne and out of the way enough that He could say, this is what I want, and I could say, let's go that way. The crisis for me was not when I found Christ. The crisis for me was when Christ found me at that level of demand that said to me, if you let me, I'll rearrange everything there is about you, but you've got to let go. I don't know about you, but that to me is crisis. Was I instantly mature? Don't talk to any of the churches I pastored. I had a lot of growing to do and lots of places where the Lord had to bring me up short. And there were times when I had to pound my way to an altar again and say to him, Oh God, I didn't mean to do that. And you know my heart. I really do desire that what I do will bring honor and glory to you. And he would say, I know that's your heart. And I'm walking with you. If you'll just be more sensitive to me, I can shape you in ways that you don't know you need to be shaped. You see... The crisis is always followed by the process of the honing and the finishing and the maturing and the shaping that God and God alone can do when God has absolute, total, final control. And the basis for all of that is not my good work. The basis for all of that is not my difficult discipline. The basis for all of that is not the fact that I had a good idea and God's got to get on board. The basis for all of that is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. No, oh, quickly, finally on the expression for this holiness. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply. From the heart. Do you see? Do you see this in the context of the address of this letter? 
to the, to the exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia, this, this, this letter written into the pockets, the isolations, the cultural pockets, the, the high, thick walls of culture and language and ethnicity, he's writing into that context when he says, love one another deeply from the heart. A wonderful privilege of <coughs> traveling across the church and being in many, many different nations. And I have to tell you that there are times when uh, it's, it's a great privilege to, to see the church in its settings, to see the church in some of the places where they begin a district assembly by singing their national anthem. I don't have a problem with that. In fact, it's enjoyable sometimes to see the way they they kind of march in and sometimes carry the flags and they'll have their national flag and the Christian flag and they'll put it all in place and then they'll sing the national anthem. Some of the national anthems are absolutely beautiful. We had a little debate in our church for a while in Kansas City about which flag to fly. See, there are 28 or 29 different nationalities represented on any given Sunday. Seemed a little inappropriate to put just one flag up there. So we finally got that out of the way and just figured maybe the cross is enough. I was, uh, was in Africa three years ago. Fred Huff at the time was the regional director and we were traveling. Went to, to Zambia, I believe it was. We were going to have a, a field conference and there were people there from Zambia a number of other nations as well. We began the evening, we began the event. Everybody gathered into the room, and the one who was going to lead the music stood up, and he said, Tonight, we're going to sing our national anthem. And my heart just sank. I mean, good gracious, we had people from Zambia and Zimbabwe, and I mean, just all kinds of nations represented. And I thought, what's he thinking? And he said to the pianist, start. And I heard the familiar notes of called unto holiness, church of our God. That God had been reading First Peter. I have an idea that somehow tonight the Lord may be walking up to you and saying to you, I see something in you that causes me to believe you could be like me. Have you said yes? How, how deep is the yes you've said? Have you said a deep enough yes that the, the cultural markers, the linguistic distinctions, the racial characteristics, the denominational boundaries and lines have been laid aside. Have you said a deep enough yes that you're willing to allow him to confront your own personal prejudices to enable you somehow to be able to say to him, a yes deep enough 
that what characterizes your life is not cultural distinctiveness, but kingdom likeness. Now that you have put off all of these other things, now that you are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a people chosen and called, a people called out from whatever you were to whatever he desires you to be, now that you've reached that place, are you saying a deep enough yes? Oh, but pastor, I, I said yes 40 years ago. Thank God. I'm glad you did. But have you said yes today? How deep is the yes you're saying? How deep is the yes? Will it reach deeply enough that the unchallenged resistance to holiness, the willingness to allow distinctiveness to define you, can be set aside in favor of the holy love of God. Because according to what Peter is saying here, the holy love of God is the ultimate characteristic of holiness. If it is not holy, it cannot be love. If it is not, if it is not love, it cannot be holy. It, it must be holy love. It must be bound together through the power of the Holy Spirit who alone can accomplish this in us but who desires to to such an extent that he's, that he's saying to you right this minute, he's walking up to you right this instant, he's laying his hand on your shoulder right now, he's looking you in the eye and he says to you, I, I see something in you. It causes me to believe you can become like me. Therefore, I choose you. Are you saying yes? Anybody here need to say a deeper yes than you've ever said before? What are you willing to surrender right now? And as we open our hearts to Him, would you let Him speak deeply enough into your own soul that any thing that puts a barrier between you and any other person on the face of the earth, whatever the distinction, you are willing to lay aside in favor of the one who says, I see something in you that causes me to believe you can be like me. Therefore, I choose you. Are you saying yes? Do you need to say yes to him? Stand with me, would you? The altar's open, always open in these sessions. What do you need to say to him tonight? What boundaries, what barriers have you allowed to somehow creep into the life you're living? Are there issues you need to lay before him? Are you saying yes? Let's sing.